This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 7th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this past week has been extraordinary. First, the number of new cases, which had been declining, is again rising in the United States and in many other parts of the world. And second, one of those newly infected is the President of the United States. The president's clearly an unusual patient, and it might be difficult to extrapolate from his treatment to the sorts of therapy that more usual citizen would get. But are there lessons we can take away from the treatment that he's been receiving? Well, Steve, let me start with some caveats. First off, what we know about the president's condition largely comes filtered through his physicians, and they may be opting to keep some information confidential. So we might not know all of what is happening. It's unlikely we have a detailed picture. And in any case, we don't want to second guess his physicians, which of course is difficult to do anyway with very limited information. But also a little context here. Yesterday, there were more than 43,000 other people infected in the US. So the president is only one of a very large number. And most of us have to treat these patients and not the president. So let's try to focus our discussion today on how decisions are made. And we'll use the president as a jumping off point, but really let's think about it in the context of how an average patient would be treated. So with those caveats, let's take a look at the elements of his care and think about how they can be applied to other patients. Earlier in the outbreak, the president reported that he was taking hydroxychloroquine to prevent infection. There's no evidence that that drug is effective So instead of talking about that drug, let's discuss the choice of how to treat generally in the face of limited information. We still don't have a lot of information about the measures that are being taken to prevent or treat disease. With all of that lack of information, how should a physician think about potential treatments? The president's physicians have reported that he has periods of hypoxemia and has occasionally received supplemental oxygen. So for starters, what's the role of oxygen in COVID-19? I don't think we have any particular data that addresses the use of therapeutic supplemental oxygen, but I think we can certainly rely on the general principles in all the rest of medicine where maintaining oxygenation is good, and there are few conditions where we wouldn't want to do that. And so I think we can think about this in the context of any other pneumonia. Our goal is to maintain oxygen levels in patients who don't require intubation, And as long as this doesn't interfere with respiratory drive, as can occur in patients with syndromes like COPD, this is obviously a good thing. Hypoxemia can help drive end organ damage, which is a particular problem in people with comorbid illnesses and who develop complications of COVID-19, such as thrombosis. In addition to supplemental oxygen, prone positioning has been shown to maintain oxygen levels in people with moderate degrees of hypoxemia and might avoid the need for intubation in some patients. So I think these simple measures are very important, although they haven't been tested in randomized controlled trials, I think we have a lot of faith in them. I mean, I think we need to look at the hypoxemia, not only Eric and Steve, in terms of what type of treatment to mitigate the hypoxemia, you know, is the ideology due to the thrombotic diathesis associated with COVID-19, or is it part of the primary lung injury? But it also is a marker of severity of illness. And one of the vexing aspects of 
COVID-19, in my view, is that individuals can have relatively mild symptoms and quite profound hypoxemia. And the measurement of the oxygen level, I think, is something that has to be done early and often in those who are SARS-CoV-2 infected to identify who's progressing as the degree of hypoxemia may be out of proportion to the degree of symptomatology and should trigger further investigation and supportive care. And that's something that I think we as a community need to think more broadly about, particularly in our more vulnerable patients, because I'm a little bit less worried about our college students who become infected than our seniors at home who become infected and can have more severe illness than we realize based on clinical symptoms alone. I think that's a great point, Lindsay. I think that in the case of the president, there has been a lot of focus on whether or not he's been receiving supplemental oxygen, which after all is a choice of the physicians, not representative of the underlying disease, when the focus for any patient really should be a measure of the degree of hypoxemia, not what the therapeutic choice was. And I think it's worth considering as we manage our patients, SARS-CoV-2 infected at home, what type of measurement should we be doing from symptomatology, to the level of fever, and in some cases in our more vulnerable patients, O2 monitoring to know if they've become hypoxemic and whether or not escalation of care should ensue before more severe illness occurs. I agree, Eric, that with the president, it's hard to know the basis of the decision-making for the supplemental O2 and whether It had to do with profound decreases in blood oxygen levels or other reasons. But I think in our general patient management, the pulse ox or the measure of the O2 sat, I think is a very important parameter early in illness to better risk stratify who's getting sick. And I will stress beyond the degree of clinical symptomatology is there is somewhat of a dissociation in my view with the degree of hypoxemia and the degree of clinical symptoms. We don't know exactly when the president was infected, but his physicians chose to treat him with various antiviral medications. What do we know about each of those? Well, this is interesting because to some extent it shows the advantages of being president. He was started on the one antiviral drug for which we have evidence of efficacy right now. So far, there's only been a single RCT of remdesivir but it did show a small but statistically significant clinical benefit, though that seemed to be primarily an early infection. And importantly, as of yet, we don't know its effect on survival. So there's a logic behind this. And as we've discussed before, most viral replication occurs early on in an infection. So one might expect that antivirals would have their largest effect early on. And thus far, the drug appears to be relatively safe. So if that's true, there's not that much downside to the potential use of remdesivir. So as of now, it might make sense to use remdesivir in majority of patients. That's not the guidelines. And it's not the guidelines in part because of the drawback of remdesivir, which is it's only available at this point as an intravenous drug, and it's administered twice a day. So this administration schedule is generally not compatible with outpatient treatment. And while comparative trials have suggested that five and 10 days have similar efficacy, 
the requirement for an IV generally requires hospitalization, unless, of course, you're the president, in which case you basically have a hospital in your house. So he can complete a full course of therapy without staying in the hospital. I think that the development of antivirals, which I agree, Eric, from a first principle standpoint, turning off viral replication as early as possible makes sense. But we need to be careful about what makes sense and what is shown to be beneficial. And that's where systematic study has helped us. And a variety of agents have come forward over the last eight, nine months with strong rationale proffered by different communities, such as lopinavir, ritonavir, hydroxychloroquine, as well as remdesivir. And studies of these different agents have only shown benefit for remdesivir, shortening the degree of illness somewhat. And obviously more data are needed to better define where remdesivir fits into treatment. I've always found the five versus 10 day data versus placebo somewhat inconsistent in the sense that the five days always seems to come out as the best. And I would have expected the five and the 10 day to be more similar, but it may well be the noise of the data as opposed to the true biology. But the results have suggested that treating with remdesivir with early to moderate illness has some benefit in shortening the severity of illness in terms of people getting better and getting out of the hospital a little bit earlier. We still need better data to really understand where it fits in and how early in disease or infection it may be beneficial. And I know several of those studies are underway and we look forward to those results. The president also received dexamethasone. What do we know about how to use that drug? Let me go back to the course of disease that Lindsay and I were just discussing. Early on during infection, viral replication sort of dominates the picture and the immune response to the virus. Later in infection, in those people who develop severe disease, it appears that the host inflammatory response is key in causing the pathology that results in a lot of end organ damage. So in other infections, we know that treatment with corticosteroids can decrease the host response and thereby increase viral replication, perhaps resulting in deleterious outcomes. But later infection, where there's less viral replication, it seems safer to do. And in fact, that rationale seems to hold up in that a study, the recovery trial, and again, it's only a single RCT, but a high quality one, showed that dexamethasone treatment, particularly late in infection, resulted in a lower death rate. However, there was a signal that suggested that early in infection, this may not be a good drug. And again, that fits the rationale where we may be increasing viral replication. One important consideration when using corticosteroids during any infection is that they're very good treatments for the symptoms of infection in general. So patients on steroids often become afebrile and they often feel better. So it might be more difficult to follow the course of infection, at least symptomatically, on patients with corticosteroids and, and might provide a false sense of security. So it's very important to watch these patients carefully. Eric, I think that the understanding the disease pathogenesis and the time course of injury and defining that has been critical for us to determine windows of treatment. And I think of it as a Goldilocks consideration. 
where we need to think of antivirals in the setting where viral replication is at a level where it's causing pathology and immune modulators at the time when immune dysregulation is causing the pathology. And what markers do we have to inform us of that? And I think as you alluded to in the recovery trial, dexamethasone was useful at a certain time in illness, which was more severe with significant degrees of hypoxemia, likely related to significant immune dysregulation. But when given earlier in illness, it appeared that it did not provide that benefit and may even have caused some harm. And so that's why we have to be very careful about rushing to judgment about a therapy being highly efficacious or highly harmful. We need to make sure that that therapy has been applied during the process of the disease when it's likely to be beneficial. And we have to systematically measure the side effects so we're able to understand the risk-benefit ratio. And I think the recovery trial provides insight into that as an example. Obviously, further confirmation is needed to better define all of the variables involved. But it does have a suggestion that early on it may be harmful and later on it may be quite beneficial. And we look forward to further data, but I think that speaks to all the more reason why we need high quality systematic data to give us the guidance on how to manage our patients with these complicated therapies in a disease that is evolving over time in what's driving injury. Let me add to that, Lindsay, that of the drugs we have to treat COVID-19, there aren't very many of them, dexamethasone looks like a very powerful tool with all the caveats that you're describing used properly, it clearly can save lives, at least in this single RCT, and is an important consideration for patients. The other thing, of course, is that dexamethasone is widely available and incredibly cheap. You don't have to be president to get it. And so I think it is an important tool in the armamentarium for physicians treating anybody in any part of the world. And what we do accept with dexamethasone. I agree, Eric, the oral nature and the scalability and the global availability are very attractive. It's also a blunt hammer. And when we're able to understand the biology well enough, it would be terrific if we had targeted immunomodulators for the key aspects of the immune dysregulation. Whether or not we'll get to that point is unknown. And of course, we don't want to delay life-saving treatment to our patients while we're trying to better refine the biology. But I think there is plenty of room for improvement in that therapy, but it's a terrific place to start for the reasons you stated, Eric, which is it's globally available, and that makes it very attractive. And we have decades of experience with it. So we have basic understanding of how dexamethasone and the corticosteroids behave. The president reportedly received one other treatment, a mixture of monoclonal antibodies. How can we evaluate the use of a treatment like that one? So this particular therapy is in early clinical trials. And at least at the point that we're recording this discussion, the information available about it only comes from a press release. And the average patient can't get this agent. And so I don't want to focus on this particular agent, but instead think about how to assess these potential upcoming therapies where there may be more access. To my mind, at least the way that I think about it is the first question is precisely what Lindsay and I have been discussing. 
is there a strong underlying rationale and preclinical information that support the use of an agent? Let's give an example of something that Lindsay already mentioned, and that is the anti-HIV drug lopinavir. This agent has a rationale. It blocks some viral proteases and has some activity against one of the proteases that's required for SARS-CoV-2 replication. And it is modestly effective in vitro, although there was preclinical pharmacologic evidence that it might be difficult to reach adequate levels in people. But we know about the toxicity of this drug. It's not particularly toxic and people have taken it for years. So it wasn't at all unreasonable to give it a try and figure out whether or not it was working. But unfortunately, the one trial that looked at the combination of lopinavir and ritonavir, which is required to boost the levels of lopinavir, didn't show a discernible signal, at least when this combination was used alone. So this was a reasonable drug to try, and unfortunately, it doesn't work. Right now, we're sort of in a similar situation with both convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies. Convalescent plasma has a long history. For more than a century, it's been used in infections, and it is effective in several of these infections. The problem with convalescent plasma is that it varies from donor to donor, and some of this problem can be mitigated by the use of monoclonal antibodies, which are much more reproducible and can be produced in large quantities so that there's less variation from patient to patient. So there is a strong rationale for this. There is very little preclinical information because our animal models are not so compelling for SARS-CoV-2 infection. So what we have right now is the information in a press release. We don't know who the patients were who received this or precisely how the drug was used or how they defined the outcomes that they have reported in the press release. So I think we await a lot more information. But in general, the toxicities of most antibodies are limited. So we can only guess at the benefit right now, but we suspect there's a limited risk. And in this case, it may not be unreasonable to say the risk-benefit ratio, even with an unknown benefit, isn't so bad. So it's not an unreasonable thing to choose. I understand the attraction to convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies. I mean, the rationale is very strong. There are individuals who became infected. They resolved infection. This is part of their immune response that helped them resolve infection. We can remove some of the immune response, the antibodies, show in the test tube that it neutralizes virus through neutralizing assays. And so it's incredibly attractive and logical. And then we can pharmaceutically make these antibodies because we know the targets, since we know the viral genome. We can then target the spike or other immunodominant epitopes and generate monoclonal therapies that go after what are clearly immunologic targets, likely highly relevant in protection. But I do disagree a little bit, Eric, in that I don't believe we know that things can only help and not hurt. And I worry that whenever we have a strong rationale and we take the position, well, it may work, it can hurt, why not? That raises concerns for me because we're not as smart as we think we are. There are different aspects of the biology that have to be better understood as dexamethasone 
demonstrated in my view, if given at the wrong period of time, it may do some harm and at the right period of time, it may do tremendous amount of good. I think that we have to be careful about a priori thinking that a new treatment that we develop can only afford benefit. Maybe it does harm, hopefully it only does benefit, maybe it does benefit only at a specific time in the illness and can we define that illness while at another time in illness, it might engender side effects. So I know I'm a broken record, but I believe strongly in systematic high quality data to really inform the risk benefit ratio and understanding that risk benefit ratio during the course of illness of a given individual, because as we already discussed early on, it may be virally driven, later on, it may be immunologically driven. The way in which we think about treatments may be very different in those settings. So I do find the harvesting the antibody response in whichever format we do that incredibly attractive and with a long history, but I'm still a little bit cautious that we fully appreciate the clinical dynamics to make it maximally beneficial and least harmful. Well, first, let me disagree with you. I think I'm exactly as smart as I think I am, but I do agree with a major point we can make good guesses and this is a reasonable guess, but we need to test them. And I think we can't substitute our guesses, which has been done a lot during this outbreak for a rigorous trial to see if things work. And I think that's a very important message. It's been a message that's been lost in the convalescent plasma discussion because with a lot of access to convalescent plasma, patients haven't been enrolling in trials and we don't have an answer to a fundamental question. I guess though, as a practicing clinician, when faced with the choice of using something, you do have to think about risk and benefit. And I agree, we don't fully understand risks and we don't know that there's a benefit and we have to do the best we can. Is it reasonable to use something like this with a rationale and where we have some idea of the benefit? I think it's absolutely reasonable. It doesn't substitute for actually testing something. It's good to see we agree every once in a while. And I just wanted to go back to another point that was made by Steve, which had to do with the other treatment the president received being the monoclonal. We actually don't know the treatments that he received. On the news, I've seen aspirin, melatonin, a variety of other potential medications. And I raise that because we have to be careful about seeing an anecdote, a single individual infected, perhaps with some hypoxemia, though we don't know, who then gets better. Ergo, whatever is commented on that he received must work. We need to be careful. One, many people who get sick get better on their own. Number two, the details of the nature of the illness and the triggers for the treatment and the details of the different treatments are not as clear. So I just want us all to be a little bit careful about over-interpreting from a single individual patient that a treatment does or does not work. I agree that all of the treatments we're discussing have rationale and promise, and through systematic data, we are hopefully defining who, when should receive these medications as new potential treatments sort of emerge. And I agree the monoclonal antibodies are incredibly exciting, but we just need some systematic data to begin to understand where they fit in clinically 
as other treatments emerge, we should apply the same standard. So in fact, we said at the outset that we would not second guess the president's care. But what about the preventive measures taken before he became infected? Well, let's try to avoid politics and stick with facts. The facts are that masks and social distancing aren't perfect. But not employing these measures that are so easy to use is foolish. This is not a political issue. Don't get exposed. And the best way not to get exposed is to have distance and barriers. And I am at a loss as to why this has become a political issue for some, because it's an apolitical issue. The virus wants to spread like a respiratory virus. We should do the interventions that prevent that, just like for flu and other respiratory viruses, but particularly for this virus, given its extremely high contagion and its extreme high morbidity and mortality in the present tense. And I don't understand why masks are not embraced by all. And embraced by all to protect their loved ones, not just themselves. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.